So this morning, to introduce uh, the message, I want to first show a video. It's a, it's a dramatic sketch. It's about 11 minutes long. For those of you who are with us online, we don't anticipate a problem, but it is possible that Facebook might uh, bump you off because of licensing. We have the license, but if that happens, you'll have to, uh, I think, go back to a new feed. Doug will start a new stream. Uh, you'll have to wait about 10 or 11 minutes to join us. Hopefully, uh, that won't happen. I trust it won't. But we're going to start with this video uh, this morning. So turn your attention to the screen, please. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece. I don't know about you, but when I get up in the morning and look in the mirror, I don't really see a, a masterpiece, you know? I mean, maybe a Picasso. It's like, <laughs> but I want to be his masterpiece. I want to be everything he created me to be. And so I go to him in prayer and I say, Dear Heavenly Father, do whatever it takes to mold me into the image of your son. Make me your masterpiece. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hi. Whoa. Who are you? I'm God. You said the prayer, so here I am. You're not God. No, I am. You said the prayer. That's how it works. Okay, okay. If you're God, then uh, make it snow in here. You know what? I really don't want to make it snow in here because it'd get kind of yucky. Yeah, you're not God. Why do you say that? God wouldn't say yucky. I do. It's a Greek word. Oh. Okay, okay. Uh, if you're God, what does Lamentations 15.9 say? Lamentations is only five chapters. It's a very short book. Oh. Why was it so short? I was tired of lamenting. Oh. Okay, okay. If you're God, who's going to win the World Series this year? I'm really not into playing games. Why are you so much into playing games? You are God. Well, gave it away. You answered my question with a question. I did? <sighs> yeah, I do that. Don't I? I did it again. Step right up. Here we go. Okay. Uh, hey, what are we doing? I'm going to make you my original masterpiece. This is the process. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Wait, wait. What are these about? These are the tools I'm going to use to make you into my original masterpiece. Okay. Hang on. Yeah. I thought you were a carpenter. That's my son. Step right up. Here we go. Okay. Oh, hey, God. Mm -hmm. How do you know what to chisel away and what to leave? I take out everything in your life that doesn't belong there, kind of like dead weight. Ooh, speaking of dead weight, could you chisel right here? It showed up when I was in my 20s and grew around and became back fat. I don't even know why you created that, but I can't get rid of it. I mean, I've tried everything. Like, I tried running, I tried lifting weights. My wife actually talked me into trying Pilates. That was awkward. But I can't get rid of it. So if you would just chisel around here, and then, you know what, if you chisel a line right here and maybe four to five, maybe eight lines right here. That would be awesome. You're funny. You made me that way. I also made the platypus. The platypus? All I'm saying is most of my children, when it comes to this process, they just want to talk, but they don't want to do the work. So do you want to talk or can I chisel? Talk, chisel, No, talk, no, chisel. no, 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 no. I choose to chisel. All right. Through my Holy Spirit, I'm going to bring up things in your life that I want you to work on. Like your anger. I created the emotion, but you use it in the wrong way. Um, you compare yourself to others instead of me. You tell little white everybody by looking really, really busy. You have a problem with lust? Well, time out. <laughs> I don't really have a problem with lust. You don't have a problem with lust. No, I can do it anytime I want. <sighs> Hang on a second. 
I mean, I, I got to admit, I, mean, I feel like you've been doing some great work and I'm looking pretty good right now. All right, when you look in the mirror, who do you see? I see me. Okay, then I need to keep chiseling away because ultimately you and other people need to see my son. Okay, don't misunderstand me. It's just um, when I look more like Jesus, people get uncomfortable around me. I mean, even my church friends and they're like, oh, you're holier than thou, you know? And, and I, don't, I don't think I'm supposed to make people uncomfortable. So what you're saying is you'd rather play God in certain areas of your life than for me to be God over your whole life. That is not what I said. It's what you meant. Yes, it is. Um, it's hard to talk to you. You know everything that I'm thinking. I'm just saying you've done some great work. Maybe we take a break, a sabbatical from each other, you know. I'll stay right here and then, you That's know. That's just it. You never just stay right there. You're either moving toward me or away from me, but never you just stay. What you're doing is called control. Do you want to control things or life or can I chisel? Control, chisel, control, no, chisel. No, chisel, chisel. All right. But can we chisel where I want? That's called control. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Now this right here, this secret sin that you keep running to whenever you're hurting, angry, lonely, tired, that you think you're fooling everybody, but it's making you a whitewashed tomb. Are you ready for me to chisel this out of your life? Yeah. See, it's a process. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's your whole life. And you care so deeply about what other people think of you. It's rubbish. It's garbage. The greatest thing you're ever going to hear is at the end of your life when you hear me say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what you keep your eye on. That's the prize. Heavenward. Oh, that hurts. Oh, trust me. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. I just, I don't think you understand this pain. Pardon me? You're asking me to sacrifice a lot, God. Don't. Talk to me about sacrifice. I know all about sacrifice. I sent my son to die on the cross for pain, for sin, but I also did it for another reason, to give you freedom. Do you know what insanity is? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. And there are things that you've been doing for years, these empty wells that don't have anything to offer. You've been going to them and it's insane. Allow me to chisel them out of your life. Um, allow me to produce character where you keep focusing so much on your image. Okay, but I was thinking. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Okay, but if we went another way. Your ways are not oh, my ways. Oh, I can't. You can't what? I, I, I can't be good. That's your excuse. That's your excuse is that you can't be good. It's not an excuse. I can't. Oh, my child, in the beginning, I said it was good. I made you good. Be good. Yeah, but you and I both. What? Nothing. No, what is it? Nothing, okay? You wouldn't understand. I, God of all the universe, wouldn't understand something one of my children has to say. Try me. It's just, um, I let you down so many times, God. No, my child. You were never holding me up. I hold you up with my victorious, righteous right hand. Never the other way around. In this relationship, I hold you up. Okay. And chisel away. Just, just be prepared for what you're going to find in there. Because I know who's inside there. Because I get up every morning and I look at him in the mirror and I hate who I see. Because deep inside there, this, this, this little kid 
who gets up every morning and dresses like an adult. And I go out and I, and I, I try to do what I'm supposed to do, but I can't, okay? I can't be who everybody else expects me to be. God, I can't even be who I want to be, much less who you created me to be. And so inside is this scared, stupid little kid. But you chisel away. Just be prepared. You have listened to so many voices for far too long that were not from me. And you have totally bought into the lie, haven't you? You think you're junk, don't you? When you lay your head down at night after you've done the dance to get the hug, you think you're junk. Listen to me. I don't take time to make junk. How can I show you that my love for you stretches as far as the east to the west? That How can I show you that my love for you has no end? I know. Reach in your back pocket. What? Reach in your back pocket. Why? Are you arguing with me? Reach in your back pocket. Oh, God. Yes? I just meant, God, I'll do that right now. You're just saying my name in vain. Come on. It's, it's a name. It's a saying. It's a name above all names. It's more than a saying. It's more than a name. I want to teach you something about my name. Reach in your back pocket. Oh, my gosh. You know what that is? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a note. I, I wrote it when I was in college. How did you get this? Hello? Oh, yeah. Go ahead, read it. I love Angie. Other side. Sorry. Dear God, did I hear you right today? Did I hear you say that you love me? Even though you and I both know I've messed up so many times. Did I hear you say you want to use me? And I feel so useless. If you'll take me and use me, then God, I give you all that I am. Take me. I love you, God. I love you too. And I love you too much just to leave you where you're at. This salvation that you hold, I don't want it to be some sentimental gush or some head knowledge. I want you to work it out in every detail of your life. And when problems come and chaos happens, don't look at this as a prison, but look at it as a father disciplines his child. A father disciplines the ones he loves. I know, but it's going to be tough. Yes, but you bought into the lie thinking everything was going to be easy when you gave everything over to me. There will be trouble in this world, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I want you to do something. I want you to look out there and I want you to say, Tommy is God's original masterpiece. Tommy is God's... No, not the way you see yourself or you try so desperately for others to see you, but maybe for the first time in your life, the way I see you, the way I created you. Tommy is God's original masterpiece. Yes, you are. And so are you. God doesn't make junk. You are an original masterpiece.
God is at work in you. God is shaping you. He is transforming you into His original masterpiece. Do you believe that? God is not merely content, content to merely save us so that someday when you die, you go to heaven. God aims to radically reshape our lives, to change us, to transform us so that we look like Jesus. Do you believe that? That God loves you. That God is at work in you. That He loves us as we are, but He loves us too much to leave us as we are. That He is chiseling. That He is working. That He is shaping us. That is the big idea that I want you to hear this morning. That I want you to take away this morning. God is at work in your life, forming you as a child, forming you as a teenager, forming you as a woman, as a man, into a person who reflects the likeness of His Son, Jesus. We are beginning a new series of messages. We began two weeks ago a series of, of sermons on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Two Sundays ago, we spent some time getting our bearings. Uh, we explored a few things about Matthew's Gospel in which we find the Sermon on the Mount. We noted that, that Matthew's Gospel uh, was written to, uh, to, originally it was written to believers with a Jewish background. That, that Matthew took, essentially, he took Mark's Gospel Almost 90% of Mark's gospel is in Matthew. And into uh, what Mark had provided, Matthew in, in includes five large blocks of teaching by Jesus. For Jewish background believers, uh, the number five would have had great significance. Uh, the Old Testament begins with the five books of Moses, the five books of the law. And so here in Matthew's gospel, uh, where's the law in the Old Testament revealed to God's people who God was what God was like, and what it meant for them to live as His people. Here, Jesus gives us a new Pentateuch, revealing who God is and what it means for us to be His people. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first of those five large blocks of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's Gospel. Next, we looked at the launch, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in the last 14 verses of Matthew chapter 4 the verses that immediately precede the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there we see that after John is arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus is said to fulfill a prophecy spoken centuries earlier by the prophet Isaiah who said that people in darkness have seen a great light, that something was happening in Jesus' coming. There was a great light shining in the darkness. Jesus begins to proclaim good news, good news of the kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven is near. And then Jesus demonstrates the inbreaking of that kingdom by healing all who are sick and suffering severe pain, the demonized, the paralyzed. Indeed, a great light was shining in the dark world. It's at that point that Matthew tells us, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And Jesus' sermon begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the sermon continues through the rest of Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 and Matthew 7. Jesus speaks to us. As I already noted, last Sunday we got our bearings relative to Matthew's gospel and the Sermon on the Mount and how it fits This morning, I want to continue to lay some important groundwork for our study of the Sermon on the Mount. It's vital that we get these foundational matters right as we begin this exploration of Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount. And to that end, I want to begin with an important question. And that question is, what is this? What, What exactly do we find when we come to the Sermon on the Mount? Throughout history, if you were to survey church history and and the church's understanding and the church's approach to this block of Jesus' teaching, there have been a variety of approaches over the centuries. And I want to walk you through uh, some of the more prevalent ones as we ask that question, what exactly is this sermon? Uh, One approach says that the Sermon on the Mount is an ethic for a future time. Some of you perhaps have heard of dispensationalism. It was a uh, a theological grid from from years ago. It's sort of fallen out of uh, mainstream now. But but it it basically said that that there would be this millennial reign for Israel someday and that this was an ethic for that future time. But because Israel largely rejected Jesus and His coming and all that He was about, that God has moved on to another plan. And so really... The Sermon on the Mount is largely irrelevant to our lives. That it, wasn't, it wasn't ever for the church, it was for Israel in, in their millennial reign. Another approach says that this was an ethic for an interim time. That, that Jesus, and Jesus said this himself, that he didn't know the day or the hour that, uh, of his return. And so that, that Jesus thought that he would be returning very soon, that, that the, the time of the end was imminent. And so there was no need to worry about long time, uh, long, long-term practicalities. And so, so this was said by Jesus in light of that expectation. But since his coming, has, his return has, has tarried, this, this really isn't that... Relevant, it's not practical for our lives. That has been another approach some throughout church history have taken of the sermon. A third approach would see this as, as a, about an ethic for social change. That if humanity would simply apply what Jesus uh, here teaches, if we'd get our act in order, uh, we could transform our world. We could bring the kingdom of heaven to earth by simply applying this. Another approach has been to see this as ethics for a special location. That Jesus gave this teaching, uh, it was confined to first century Palestine under Roman rule, that it's not 
for those of us living today. Another approach, a fifth approach, and this one I would contend is probably the one that most of us assume, that this is for first-class Christians. This would be very prevalent within a, a Catholic tradition, but others as well. That this is for monks or nuns, priests, pastors, those who, whose lives are dedicated to this at, at a level that, that you know, ordinary people simply can't do. This is sort of for first-class Christians. Another approach is that this is an ethic to convict us of sin, more of a Lutheran approach. That Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus holds up in front of us a mirror so that we look into it and we see how desperately far we have fallen, how much we need God's grace, and so we're driven to, to the cross through this. One final approach is that this is ethics for the church in the present that this teaching is to be rigorously obeyed today. And, and there's two schools of thought here. On the one hand, there are some who even contend that, that this is actually law, not gospel. That, that Jesus and Paul uh, contradict each other. That Paul spoke always of grace, but that Jesus here gives a, a new law and expects us to do this. That we need to live, live this out, striving to obey this diligently. That, that there's this contradiction between Paul and Jesus and others say another school of thought within that ethic for the present is that salvation is by grace but this reflects God's will for his people that obedience is a necessary demonstration of the reality of our salvation these have all been different approaches different understandings of this sermon some that have basically that made the sermon largely irrelevant to our lives others that have applied it in ways that I would contend are are not biblical not appropriate but, but of all those, or is there another approach, which is the, the correct approach, and how are we to decide? Before I answer that question, I want to remind you of the essential context of this sermon. If you were here two Sundays ago, you will remember that we looked at the text that precedes Jesus' sermon. John was arrested. Jesus' earthly ministry is launched. He shows up, and he begins to preach. And his message is repent, that is turn, do a U-turn, uh, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. A quick aside, Matthew speaks of the kingdom of heaven. Generally, that's his language. It is in the Sermon on the Mount. He speaks of kingdom of heaven, where other gospel writers and other New Testament writers uh, typically say kingdom of God. What I want you to understand is those, those, are, those are synonymous. Uh, Matthew, remember, he is writing to a largely Jewish background believer context in the original context and so many Jews out of reverence for God would not use the the word God because it was such an exalted term it was too holy and so they would adopt other euphemisms so in this case they they, they use the word heaven to represent that but the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of God it's the same thing it means the same thing Matthew here speaks of the kingdom of heaven Jesus bursts onto the scene Preaching the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then Matthew goes throughout Galilee proclaiming good news of the kingdom. That's what we saw at the end of chapter 4. And Matthew told us that in his coming, Jesus fulfilled what the prophet Isaiah had foretold, that people living in darkness have seen a great light, that a great light was now shining in the midst of a dark world in the coming of Christ. Good news, the gospel. That's what Jesus proclaimed. In Mark, Jesus says, uh, we read, Jesus proclaimed the good news, the time has come. 
Jesus announces that in his coming, God's kingdom, God's reign has broken into this present world. That God's reign has come. But it doesn't look, certainly not on the surface, like it has. Think with me. The expectations of God's people were were largely political. If you were with us through the summer, through our study of the book of Malachi, remember uh, Malachi comes after the exile. God's people had been carried off in exile in Babylon, but God had promised to return. And so in the days of Malachi, they had returned to the land. The temple had been rebuilt, but it it was a shadow of its former glory. The wall eventually was rebuilt. The population of the returned people was a fraction of what it had been, and, and, and most significantly, they were still under foreign domination, foreign rule. And so God's people thought, this isn't the kind of return we were expecting. They, they were expecting a, a Messiah who would be a warrior king, who would turf the Romans, who would take the throne of his father David and reestablish Israel politically in all its glory. That was the expectation of what God's kingdom meant of what God's reign would look like. What Jesus is announcing, the inbreaking of God's kingdom, looks radically different than what was expected. But that's because their expectations were off. The, the kingdom of God is, in fact, not a political reality, nor is it merely a future reality. Jesus says the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Despite what may appear to us, Jesus declares that in his coming, God has invaded this broken world, uh, that his kingdom reign has begun, has come, it is present. Jesus announces a great fact, that in his coming, world history has reached a crisis point. In him, the long-awaited kingdom of heaven, God's glorious reign of light, And justice and healing is breaking in upon humanity now, presently. It's here in his coming. As the story of Jesus unfolds throughout the gospel, we will discover more and more what all is entailed in the good news. It means forgiveness of sins. It means that we are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. It means uh, being accepted. The, The gift of adoption as daughters and sons. The gift of God's indwelling spirit who lives in us. The gift of eternal life, which isn't just future, but it is already breaking in. We already now live the life of the future. And this is, according to Jesus, a present reality. Already true. Already we are living that life. In Jesus, a divine revolution is underway. A whole new order of existence is breaking into the world. In the coming of Christ, God is creating a new humanity. God is recreating fallen human beings, remaking us to be men and women, young and old, who look like Jesus. And so here's what we need to grasp as we come to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is absolutely relevant for our lives, profoundly so. But but the Sermon on the Mount is not some new law that Jesus gives. It's not the old law on steroids cranked up. 
The Sermon on the Mount describes what God's new humanity looks like. This is what we are supposed to look like. This is how we are supposed to live. This is a picture. I don't know how many of you enjoy doing puzzles. I, I, I do. I, I find it strange, but I love doing puzzles. During my holidays, I did three of them. And, and, and before, one of the ones I did, I'd forgotten about. Christine said, oh, this is one that someone gave you as a gift. And, and so I got it out. And how do you do a puzzle? Those of you who do puzzles, what's the first thing you do? You build the frame, right? You know what someone did with this one puzzle that they gave me? Someone gave me a puzzle without any edge pieces. They stole them all. It's very strange. I built it. I did it without a border. But, but what do you do when you build a puzzle? At least I always look at the box, right? The, the picture shows you what you're building. It messed me up because I couldn't get, like, why can't I find that? Oh, yeah, that's probably the edge. You look at the box, it, it gives you a picture of what you're trying to build. The Sermon on the Mount, I want you to think about it. This is a picture that Jesus gives us of what our lives are supposed to look like as men and women who are being uh, shaped by him, shaped by the good news. See, we encounter the Sermon on the Mount, we come to it and we think, this is overwhelming, this is, this is utterly impossible. G.K. Chesterton uh, writes this about the Sermon on the Mount. On the first reading, you feel that it turns everything upside down, but the second time you read it, you discover that it turns everything right side up. The first time you read it, you feel that it is impossible. The second time, you feel that nothing else is possible. The reason that this seems so foreign to us is because we have become so used to living in other ways. Upside down has come to feel normal. But actually, the Sermon on the Mount sets us right side up. This is a portrait of who we are to be. This is a picture of how we are to live as Christ's people. Not filled with hatred and lust. Not people who retaliate with violence in the face of violence. We're to be men and women who are full of grace, not bitterness and unforgiveness. Uh, not anxious and worried, but trusting in God's goodness. Uh, people whose lives bear marvelous fruit as we live in loving fellowship with God, our Heavenly Father, and Christ, our Redeemer. But, but please do not miss the vital context of this sermon. Jesus' message was an announcement of good news. And that, that wasn't, hey, good news, try harder. Good news, get your act together or else. That, that, that's not a message of good news. It's, it's good news. Look what God is doing. In my coming, God's reign is breaking in. In my coming, God's kingdom is, is happening. It's unfolding. Look at what I'm doing. Jesus came calling us to believe the good news, that God is at work in his coming, in Christ's coming, to set all things right. That in him and through him, everything is changing. That in him and through him, we receive grace and forgiveness. That in him, we are clothed with his holiness. That in him, we are adopted. That in him, we have a new identity. We are made into new creations. Here's a truth that we need to understand this morning. That when we believe the good news, 
When we believe the gospel of what God has done through Christ, as the gospel takes root in our hearts, it begins to transform our lives. It, it begins to work itself out. It gospelizes us. We begin to develop new character traits. We begin to behave in new ways. We begin to live for a new, with a new set of ambitions. We begin to look like what is described here. The Sermon on the Mount is the ethics of the inbreaking kingdom of God. This is how we who are in Christ are supposed to live. We don't live this way to become Christians. We don't live this way by our own strength, by our own power, by our own doing. No, we learn to live this way because we are in Christ, because of Christ's work in us, because His Spirit is having His way in us, because He is recreating us. He is shaping us. Oswald Chambers writes these important words. Beware, however, of placing our Lord as teacher first instead of, instead of Savior. That tendency is prevalent today, and it is a dangerous tendency. We must know Him first as Savior before His teaching can have any meaning for us or before it can have any meaning other than that of an ideal that leads to despair. Here's what he's saying. There is much that we will learn here about from Jesus about how he wants us to live, what our lives are to look like, but we must always begin with, we must remain firmly anchored to the gospel. Jesus is, before he teaches us, he saves us. Before he is our teacher, he is our savior. And if we ever lose sight of that gospel context, this sermon will crush us. It will either become frustrating idealism, something we can never live up to, or oppressive legalism, this heavy weight that just we cannot bear. If we ever lose our grip on the gospel, it will become frustrating idealism or oppressive legalism. But when we recognize that the picture Jesus paints here is a picture of what we look like as the gospel takes root, as, as His Spirit has His way in us, we will be set free. We will find joy as He works in us, changing us, transforming us. And so this morning we stand on the edge of the sermon. On the edge of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Next week we will step into it. We will dive into the Beatitudes. And what I want you to think about is, th is this. That over the coming weeks and months as we make our way slowly through Jesus' Sermon... God is at work in us. God is at work in you, chiseling. There are things in his life he wants to challenge. There are areas of his life that he wants to expose and, and root out. God is at work in us. He's at work in you, chiseling away. His desire is to shape you, to reshape you, to transform you and me. The late John Stott spoke of the Sermon on the Mount. He described it as Christian counterculture. His point was this, that as those who have repented and believed, those who have repented, turned, and put our faith in Jesus in the good news, that, that we are, are those who are forgiven and clothed with righteousness, adopted, uh, who have received this new identity and filled, uh, filled by the Spirit, set free from sin, 
We're set free from sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. We have a new identity in Christ that that we are learning to keep in step with the Spirit who indwells us, that we're being transformed. His point is that we who repent and believe the good news, that we are to be different from those all around us, that our lives are to be transformed, changed, shaped. He says this, God's historical purpose is to call out a people for himself, that this people is a holy people, set apart from the world that belong to him and obey him, and that its vocation is to be true to its identity, that is, to be holy or different in all its outlook and behavior. One of the dangers we face is that we would be assimilated to our world, that we would be discipled more by the forces around us in our culture than we would be discipled by Christ. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, we come before Jesus, our Savior and our teacher, to learn from Him and to be discipled by Him, to to grow in obedience, to, to become the men and women that He has created us to be, called us to be, freed us to be. The, the ones he's at work in us to make us to be. Oh, that we would not be content to simply say, oh, I said the prayer. I put my faith in Jesus. Now I can just kind of live however I want. That's to miss the grandness of salvation. Salvation is about more than just one day when I die, I go to heaven. It's not simply about getting some ticket punched. It's about becoming a new creation. When we trust Jesus, we are made into new creations. And here's a picture of what that looks like. And so may we not be those who are content to be more shaped by the world around us than by Jesus. In Jeremiah 10, the Lord says, do not learn the ways of the nations. I want to challenge you to reflect on that. Are we being shaped more significantly by our culture around us or by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is the ethic of the inbreaking kingdom. It describes what life looks like in a broken world when God's kingdom of wholeness breaks in and takes hold of our lives. And, and when we fail to be and do what we are to be and do, it is because we've lost touch with the gospel. It's because we've lost touch with the good news of what God has done and is doing, of what Christ has accomplished, and of our new identity in Him. And so here's my challenge. Instead of beating yourself up, instead of approaching this or or your Christian life and thinking this is a matter of me pulling myself up by my spiritual bootstraps, I want to encourage you to turn back to Jesus and the good news, the gospel of what is true in Him, that In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you are clothed with his perfection. In Christ, you are adopted. You are are a new creation. You have been set free from sin. And that he is at work forming you, shaping you, chiseling you. E. Stanley Jones writes this, Our present-day Christianity, anemic and weak from the parasites that have fasten themselves on its life through the centuries, needs a blood transfusion from the Sermon on the Mount in order to renew radiant health within. The purpose of the Christian faith is not merely to get you to heaven when you die. God's purpose is to transform us, to shape us, that each of us would 
look like Jesus, that we would reflect His likeness, that we would be His masterpieces, transformed, gospelized, shaped by the gospel. My hope, my prayer, my challenge is that every one of us would, as we walk into this series, that we would do so prayerfully. That you would invite Jesus to come and to chisel. That you would say, Jesus, I want to be shaped by you. I want my life to reflect your life. I want my likeness to reflect your likeness. I want you to have your way in me. So so come and give me eyes to see. That we would not hear the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' very challenging words and, and that it would be this frustrating idealism or this oppressive legalism, but that we would see it for what it is, a picture of who we were created to be, a picture of who Jesus is forming us to be. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this sermon of yours. And we thank you for the gospel in which it is rooted, anchored, The good news that that in you, everything is changed. That in you, there is forgiveness. That in you, we have been declared righteous. That in you, we have been adopted. That in you, we've been set free. Jesus, I pray for every person here. Lord, for any who are listening this morning who do not yet know you, I pray that there that you would stir their heart, that they would be drawn to you and your promise of life. And Lord, for those of us who have put our faith in you, perhaps for some of us many, many years ago, Lord, would you, would you kindle within us a new excitement, a new joy? Lord, I, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for the chiseling that you want to do, shaping us through these words, through this sermon. Jesus, we pray, come and have your way in us for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in your name. Amen.